Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. After a humiliating week in which his House colleagues rebuffed his lifetime ambition to be Speaker of the House no fewer than 14 times, Kevin McCarthy finally secured the gavel, though only after acquiescing to a series of increasing demands that are sure to greatly complicate his tenure. McCarthy absorbed the multiple rounds of public torment at the hands of a group of 20 extreme right-wing members of the Freedom Caucus, whose resistance resulted in the longest speaker battle since the Civil War. Finally, there was a break in the dam on Friday, though even then it still took three more ballots for McCarthy to get the brass ring. And not without heavy cost. His concessions throughout the week have guaranteed a tenure as perhaps the weakest speaker in history. More ominously, they have structurally empowered a nihilist Freedom Caucus contingent in the House that is proudly indifferent to the prospect of government failure including holding hostage the nation's full faith and credit and declaring war on the Department of Justice and the FBI. This episode of Talking Feds was recorded on Friday, January 6th, not long before McCarthy had secured the speakership, though as you'll hear, the result was becoming apparent. It also marked the two-year anniversary of the January 6th attempted coup. It's clear that there is a through line between the public debacle over Republican leadership in the House and the support from so many members of the party, including McCarthy, for the big lie and some version of Trumpian authoritarianism. That in turn poses the question of what needs to happen to the Republican Party and its members, so many of whom continue to bury their heads in the sand and ignore the overwhelming evidence in the January 6th committee report in order for the country to pull out of the morass that remains Trump's legacy. To help us understand just what happened in the House this week, and more importantly, what it portends for the actual governance of the country and the troubled era in which we remain embroiled, I am really pleased to welcome a crazy distinguished group of analysts and commentators, all, I'm happy to say, first-time guests to Talking Feds. And they are. Gloria Borger, a CNN senior political analyst. She's a regular on the CNN primetime shows, an integral contributor to CNN's award-winning election night coverage. Gloria also has hosted a number of CNN documentaries and specials, including The Odd Couple, about powerhouse Washington attorneys David Boyes and Ted Olson, for which she was nominated for an Emmy. Welcome, Gloria. Thanks very much for being here. Thank you. Jonathan Capehart, an associate editor and opinion columnist for The Washington Post. He's the anchor of The Sunday Show with Jonathan Capehart on MSNBC, a political analyst for PBS NewsHour and host of the podcast Capehart, and the weekly Washington Post live show First Look. His MSNBC special, A Promised Land, A Conversation with Barack Obama, was nominated in 2021 for an Emmy for Outstanding News Discussion and Analysis. 
He previously was the youngest ever member of the New York Daily News editorial board where he shared the Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing in 1999. Thank you so much for joining, Jonathan. Thank you, Harry. Great to be here. Great to be with everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to all. And Robert Costa, the chief election and campaign correspondent for CBS News, where he covers national politics and American democracy. Before joining CBS, he was a national political reporter for The Washington Post for seven years, and he also served as the moderator and managing editor of PBS's Washington Week. In 2021, he co-wrote the New York Times bestseller, Peril with Bob Woodward, which was the subject of one of our Talking Books special episodes. He spent much of this wild and woolly week reporting from the floor, and he is there now and may have to bolt at any second. But thank you, Robert, for taking time out to join the discussions. It's great to be with all of you. Thank you. All right. So let me just try to set the table a little for people who haven't followed that closely. The Republicans have a narrow majority, 222 to 212 in the House. So McCarthy, whose life ambition is to be speaker, can afford to lose only four votes. A group of 20 rebels stood steadfast against him through 11 votes until finally today he made dramatic headway, turning 14 of them. Let me start here. Who exactly are McCarthy's opponents and what's the nature of their opposition? There are different reasons for folks to oppose McCarthy. I think like all internal House politics, some of it is very personal. Folks like Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert have made their livelihoods <laughs> campaigning against him. They don't like him. They think he represents people who give in too much to the Democrats, et cetera, et cetera. And there is personal animus there, no doubt about it. I think the rest of the folks who originally opposed McCarthy, and that is now down to six from the 20, wanted to extract from him some promises about rules changes, about their own personal careers, about the ability to propose to eject a speaker by just one vote. And these are folks who believe that they should have more say in the internal process of the House. And so bit by bit, they have chipped away at McCarthy, who has given them more of what they want. But there are still these holdouts and they are working on them and getting Donald Trump uh, to help him out a little bit with some of the members if he still has the juice to do that. So you mentioned personal political goals and you mentioned rules changes. You didn't mention, interestingly, policy disagreements. <laughs> so we basically have a big group for McCarthy and a small group of rebels who really, is this fair to say, are not distinguished by any sort of important policy goals, goals about governance, goals about what the House should or shouldn't do. It really comes down to much more process political questions. Is that fair, this, where the stress points are? There are substantive stress points in terms of the upcoming vote on the debt limit, for example. They want yeah. limits on defense spending. And so I think that is a key point of contention here. So there are some substantive demands. I wouldn't say that there were not. But I think largely a big part of this is how the House is governed and what their part in governance is. All right. So let's turn to the 200 or 214 or whatever it is, the people who are ready to support McCarthy. Do they have a common identity? 
Is there any kind of policy distinctions here, or is it just politics with a small p? The policy distinctions are there, but they're a little bit more gray than black and white. I mean, at the end of the day, this party has been transformed by President Trump and his influence. The former president hovers over the party in terms of its policy. It's moved over on trade. It's become more nationalistic. It's become, on issues like immigration, very hardline. And so you see throughout the House Republican Conference a sensibility that's toward Trumpism on foreign policy in terms of non-intervention as a position. You see the border being an intense focus when it comes to domestic policy. And there's still that Tea Party element that's mixed in, that fiscal hardline perspective. And, and all of that's brewed together to make the new rank-and-file average House Republican who probably voted for Trump, supported the Tea Party, and was also recruited by Kevin McCarthy. And Kevin McCarthy is not only the leader of the House Republicans, but he's someone who, going back to 2010, has been really the lead recruiter of candidates across the country. And so what you're yeah. seeing here is a, a party that has some centrist left, like Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, that Main Street group, the Tuesday group inside the House. But what does it mean to be centrist anymore? Well, it doesn't <laughs> actually mean you're liberal. It maybe means that you just want to not use the debt limit as a showdown over spending. It might mean that you would like to spend a trillion dollars in a bipartisan way on infrastructure, and that's now seen as, quote, centrist. So ideologically, the party is still very much in Trump's imprint, along with the combination of the Bush eras, both George H.W. Bush, kind of the country club Republican, the George W. Bush, evangelical, Southwest, Sunbelt Republican. But it's also really about how do you approach the House? Is it a point of leverage to be in the House of Representatives and the Senate for different kinds of political points? Or is it a place to govern? And that's really the dividing line more than any ideology. And Jonathan, if I can ask you, so let's stick with the however many there are, moderates, Robert called them. They are few and far between, we know. On the other hand, 18 members of the caucus were elected from districts that voted for Biden. So do they have a breaking point here? McCarthy seems absolutely eager and willing to give away the store, whatever it is, including this crazy notion that Robert mentioned of a single vote being enough to bring him down and you know challenge his speakership. Is there a point that he gives away too much so that his core 200 or whatever they are bolt and say, you know, you're diminishing our role too much and we're not going to support you anymore? But where do they go? Right. I mean, there's nowhere else for them to go. This notion that they would work with Democrats to come up with some sort of, quote unquote, moderate speaker is fantasy. I also think that we also have to remember these so-called moderates. And as Robert said, you know, what counts as a moderate or centrist these days? We have to remember that on this second anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, a lot of those people who are voting for McCarthy were people who voted to not certify the 2020 election. And so we've got you to put this on a sliding scale here when it comes to the bulk of McCarthy's vote are people who a lot of Americans will look and say, hey, you're still a part of the problem, even though you are voting for McCarthy. The other thing that I find fascinating about this situation that we're in 
is that, yes, McCarthy recruited a lot of these people. He's given them a lot of money. And yet, last I checked, we're still on the 13th ballot, maybe even going to a 14th or even a 15th. Certainly, some of these people who are opposing him are people who McCarthy either recruited or gave money to, supported, hoped that they would win re-election as a means of getting the majority. So there's only so much money and recruitment, as we're learning, doesn't actually equal love when it comes to getting a vote for speaker. But this all raises the bigger question of how much control would a Speaker McCarthy actually have? He's given away so much already in terms of the power of the speakership that I can't imagine what else could he give away that would make, quote unquote, moderates say, oh, my God, you've given away too much. We've got to go another way. I'm not sure what's left. And that gets to a bigger issue of what are these folks really interested in? Are they really interested in governing or are they interested in blowing things up? Because a lot of folks came to Congress because they wanted to blow things up, change Washington. We know from Marjorie Taylor Greene, Congresswoman, she's only voting for McCarthy because he promised her an investigation into either President Biden or somebody in the Biden administration. Impeach Fauci or Mayorkas. Or Mayorkas, right. Investigations and impeachment. This isn't policy. This isn't about moving the country forward or solving inflation or lowering gas prices or doing anything about crime, which a lot of these folks supposedly ran on to get into Congress. And the bigger thing that is most terrifying to me as someone who watched the debt ceiling fight in 2011 with some trepidation when the Tea Party was in control of the Republican majority, this incoming crew of Republicans in the majority make the 2011 folks look reasonable. These are folks who would be willing, and we're about to find out, if they're willing to not just run up to the line that the 2011 Tea Party folks did in terms of putting the full faith and credit of the United States on the line. But my big concern is just as there are at least seven people who are willing to not vote for Kevin McCarthy over and over and over and over again, no matter how damaging it is to McCarthy, to the party in the House, to the party nationally, that there are people within this incoming majority who would think nothing of letting the country default for a day or two days or three days. These are kind of the nihilists, right? The anarchists, the folks that, as you say, are not as concerned with governing at all. And I think what we're seeing is something we may see over and over again. And you have to ask yourself, okay, McCarthy, we know you've wanted this job for a very long time, but be careful what you wish for. Because the Republican Party in the House is now laid bare. And he can make these promises to some of these Republicans about you know, I'm going to give you a vote on X or a vote on Y, but we know the Senate is controlled by Democrats. And so he can do something knowing full well that in the end, it's not going to happen and there's going to have to be some compromise. And they have shown the American public this week that they are allegedly in charge, but can't even choose a speaker. And therefore, if nothing gets done, what do you think Democrats are going to do. 
What do you think Joe Biden is going to do if he decides to run, as is his intention? They'll look at the Republican Party in the House and say, these are obstructionists. These wouldn't let, you know, these appropriations bills get passed or they wouldn't do this or they wouldn't do that. And look at how much we accomplished when we had both houses. So I know McCarthy went down to Mar-a-Lago right after January 6th, sold his soul. And now he's going back to Donald Trump again to help him out. But now Donald Trump's children, who were conservative before Donald Trump was, are now saying, nah, you don't have as much juice as you used to have. We're in charge now, says Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates. So it's a party that has been defined by Donald Trump, as Robert said earlier, but is moving beyond Donald Trump. And we don't know where to, but this is the start of it. And what we are seeing is what I think we're going to see over and over again. This is really the bullseye point, and I definitely want to return to it. Let me just stick with where we are for a minute. Robert, you're on the floor, and you reported this morning on progress, a possible breakthrough for McCarthy. Does it look now as if, however long it takes, McCarthy is going to be able to prevail? And what, in general, are the forces that have finally broken through and made at least substantial progress for him? toward securing the speakership. So I'm here at the U.S. Capitol, and I just pulled aside Congressman Thomas Massey of Kentucky, who's a longtime conservative. I, I just spoke with Congressman Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, the chair of the Freedom Caucus. Right. And I walked over the details of my report. And what is the, the deal that McCarthy put on the table to win these holdouts over at the 11th hour on Thursday evening? And, and real quick, here's what they are. Three different buckets. Number one, changes to the House rules, allowing the motion to vacate the chair, to remove the speaker, to have a very low threshold. Just one person could start that process. And there'll be other changes to the floor rules to make it easier for conservatives to add on amendments and shape the scope of legislation. Second bucket, committee assignments. The steering committee, which is highly influential in placing people on committee, will now have a member of the House Freedom Caucus on it in a designated seat. Even if they're junior, right? I mean, this is going to trump seniority rules, right? That's right, because the seniority rules will now incorporate a Freedom Caucus chair as someone who deserves to have that committee standing. It's going to enable the House Freedom Caucus to not just be dominant on things like the Oversight Committee and the Judiciary Committee, but to have real powerful placement on the appropriations, on financial services, on ways and means, et cetera. And the third part here is that and I think this is the third part's the most important, is that McCarthy has signaled he will allow the Freedom Caucus in various ways to drive the financial position, fiscal position of the House GOP in terms of how it takes a line on things like the budget and the debt limit. The details will really matter here. But Scott Perry told me on the record, he said he has discussed the debt limit with these negotiators for McCarthy, and he feels he's in a comfortable place. Now, remember who Scott Perry is. Scott Perry yeah. is someone who during the 2020 post-election period would go to the White House to meet with Mark Meadows. And it's been reported that sometimes in, in, in testimony under oath that when Perry would go in, sometimes papers would burn after those meetings. He is someone who actively tried to overturn the election, especially in his home state of Pennsylvania. And he's completely integral to the whole DOJ plot. He's the one who makes the connection between Trump and Clark, the functionary who would be attorney general. 
And he refused a subpoena, right? So right. there you Correct. go. So Scott Perry, that Scott Perry is right. the, the linchpin for Kevin McCarthy's speakership. Amazing. And you've said, you know, even before today that the bottom line is the empowerment of the Freedom Caucus for whatever that means. Well, actually, let me ask you, I mean, two-part question to anyone. Does it mean that the speaker, whoever it is, and it's looking more and more like it'll be McCarthy, is in an incredibly weak position, already challenged by the narrow numbers, but now is permitted himself to be so precarious? And then second, is the basic dynamic here going to be that this Freedom Caucus they are going to be the dominant force in the Republican caucus for the next two years. Does that seem a foregone conclusion now? I don't know how dominant they're going to be. I think that what's happened before our very eyes is that you see the conservatives and some call them moderates or whatever, getting upset by this behavior and getting upset by people wanting gavels in committees, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what it means is that they're going to be a constant irritant, and I don't think they're going to lead anyone anywhere. So as I was saying before, I think that this is a party in transition, but it doesn't know which way it's going to go. Yeah. And so, you know, the House of Representatives, and I covered the House for 10 years when I was at Newsweek Magazine, and I'm, I'm like, it's always a place to look. When you want to see, okay, what's going on nationally in the country? And, you know, it's right before our very eyes. It's a party who doesn't know who's leading it or where it wants to go. And I think McCarthy is going to be a speaker, as you put it, with a very tenuous hold on power. And we're going to see this story repeat itself. I agree with your assessment, Gloria, about if this is a party that's in transition that doesn't know who's leading it which makes it a dangerous party and makes it possible for a minority within that majority to drive things, as we have seen after 13 votes for speaker. And that gets back to what I said in my initial answer at the beginning of this conversation, why I'm so focused on the debt ceiling. To hear Robert talk about the three buckets and the third bucket being allow the Freedom Caucus to drive the fiscal position and policies of the Republican Party, well, there are a lot of people within the party in the House who think that raising the debt ceiling is about increasing spending, when we all know that is about paying for stuff we've already purchased. And the full faith and credit of the United States, right? Right. Exactly. It's like running out on the check of a very expensive meal. But these folks who are now demanding veto power or power over how the House is going to respond to this should frighten anybody who really not only worries about democracy, but worries about the standing of the United States on the world stage. You know, you think you're worried about inflation now, gas prices now, job creation now. Imagine what could or would happen if the United States missed one debt payment. We do not want to get to that point, but there are a lot of people in the 118th Congress's Republican majority who would be just fine having the nation find out. More than that, chuffed, right? It brings down the government. I mean, it seems part of what's happening here is that the criteria for success has sort of changed, even as recently as, say, John Boehner 
people wanted to ascend to leadership positions to do certain things or exercise governmental power responsibly. It feels to me like now in the kind of Fox News era, the individual calculations for people like Marjorie Taylor Greene or maybe Perry have nothing to do with that. Their interest is in being on Fox News, basically launching these grenades. I think a very good example is Boebert, who went from a somewhat obscure person to a leader in the House because she's taken this kind of stance. So you're right. We have people who, in part because of changing political dynamic and their own calculations of what serves them personally, just don't give a crap about Mm -hmm. responsible governance and what could happen, for example, to the country if we forfeit on our obligations. Right. Well, to your point, Harry, remember when Madison Cawthorn was in Congress, he made news because more of his budget went to communications staff than to policy staff. Yeah. His whole focus was about being front and center media-wise and not about the hard work of legislating, of governing, of, as a freshman member of Congress, getting on committees and gaining the expertise that would allow him to be reelected and gaining seniority and then taking that knowledge and using it, not just with the benefit of his constituents back home, but you know what they used to do in the old days, take that experience, take that knowledge and, and know-how and seniority, and possibly turning it into bigger leadership positions, propelling oneself to higher office or higher stature. And he's he wasn't interested in any of that. He was interested in clicks in appearances on Fox News or wherever the conservative audience was at the time. And it really bears emphasis again and again that McCarthy himself was among the 139 or whatever Republicans who voted not to certify the election. And, you know, he's hardly come down in this sort of responsible governance position. So, look, There's been this almost sporting aspect of it, and McCarthy is kind of a wounded bull in the arena, and I think it's hard not to have some focus on that. But taking a step back from that, is anybody happy about the mess this week? Is Marjorie Taylor Greene, is Hakeem Jeffries, the leader of the the Democrats, is Steve Bannon, has this week and the bedlam of it been to any political groups or person's interest as you see it? Look, I think that the Democrats sitting back and watching this occur is not bad for them because this did not occur when they controlled the House by a very slim margin. For Democrats, they'd like the Republicans to be able to select a leader. I think they can say, you know, we had nothing to do with this. But in terms of the country, I mean, it's embarrassing. It's just embarrassing for the country to be watching members on one side of the aisle try and destroy each other to a degree. And I don't know what the ramifications of that will be in the Republican Party. But, you know, I don't think anybody really particularly enjoys watching this scene unfold. 
Let's think about this in terms of the party. I mean, it is today as we tape the anniversary of January 6th, and so much of what's involved seems to have to do with the Republican Party's stance vis-a-vis the insurrection and other things. There's been some really interesting analyses about the sort of origins here within the party. I've seen people trace this to Reagan. I've seen people trace it to 2008, 2009. I've seen people trace it to the Gingrich contract with America. Where do you see, you know, within the Republican Party where they took the big turn away from responsible governance and toward a kind of nihilism? Robert, you trace this at, to at least the last decade in what you've called the Mark Meadowsization of House Republican politics, still simmering long after Meadows' exit from the Hill. Can you explain that a little more? Sure. What I mean by the Mark Meadowsization of House Republican politics is a certain kind of posture when it comes to policy. Here's the key crossroads to think about. About seven years ago, Donald Trump began to rise. And that coincided with the end of kind of the Paul Ryan era in the Republican Party. Paul Ryan, the Wisconsin congressman, had been on the Republican presidential ticket as the VP in 2012. And he articulated this vision of cutting long-term social spending on Medicare and Social Security that was elevated to the fore of the Republican Party in 2012. And he carried that banner through 2015, 2016. 2017, 2018, when he's the Speaker of the House. But pursuing those goals fell by the wayside as Trump began to be such a central figure in the Republican Party. And there was an acknowledgement that Republican Party core voters didn't want what Paul Ryan and the business community wanted. And what we saw was the rise of this backbencher from North Carolina, Mark Meadows, who did share Ryan's ideology, but had entirely different tactics. And this is very inside, inside baseball. But the Republican Study Committee, which was long the conservative caucus in the House, splintered. And Mark Meadows and a group of his friends formed what we call the House Freedom Caucus. And this was ideologically on par with Ryan and with the Republican Study Committee and other conservative blocs. But the House Freedom Caucus was founded because it believed that the leadership needed to be more combative in using showdowns like the debt limit, spending deadlines as leverage to enact concessions from Democrats on things they all agreed on, like spending and cuts, but they wanted to have a much more combative approach. And the Mark Meadowization of politics is my way of thinking through, how did we get here with Kevin McCarthy this week? Mark Meadows and Kevin McCarthy actually never got along, But this Freedom Caucus that Meadows founded is now central to helping McCarthy get the speaker's gavel by trying to cut a deal with him using those same hardball tactics. Well, I will say that it seems that the party may have been headed in this direction pre-Trump for years. But once he came down that escalator and within two minutes of his announcement speech said that Mexicans were rapists, among other things, that slide picked up in haste. 
We come back and back to that 45-second little descent from the escalator. I agree. Right. And, you know, he ripped the lid off roiling tensions within the country that were just below the surface and that more responsible politicians toyed with but knew enough when to put the lid back on the pot. And Trump just took it off and said, not only am I going to take the lid off, I'm going to stir it. And I'm going to keep adding to it. And once he won, he just kept stirring the pot. And so here we are. I look on this day, Harry, it is an incredible split screen moment for the country on a whole host of levels. At one end of Pennsylvania Avenue at the White House, the president of the United States was handing out presidential medals to 12 people, 14 people who put their lives on the line or did things to protect American democracy. It was also the president earlier in the week who went to Kentucky, pretty much on the border with Ohio, and stood there with the Senate minority leader, Mitch McConnell, to tout an infrastructure program. At one end of Pennsylvania Avenue, you have what looks like old-fashioned governance, old-fashioned governing, standing up for our ideals of a small-D democratic nation, our values. Whereas at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, in the House of Representatives, two years ago, there were people who were storming the Capitol, insurrectionists who were trying to stop the certification of a free and fair election. And two years later, in that House chamber, we're watching vote after vote after vote for a Speaker of the House with the Republican majority at war with itself, sort of a continuation of that insurrection. And the message that might cement with the American people is, you know what? Maybe entrusting the Republicans and the Republican Party with governing is not a good idea. And we saw that Democrats weren't supposed to be this close in terms of their numbers in the House. Right. Democrats were supposed to potentially not even have the Senate. And yet, Democrats defied history, and they defied history because people looked at the alternative and saw that, you know what? Republicans tried to overturn the election. They've tried to do all sorts of things that go against who we believe we are as a nation. And therefore, Democrats certainly, independents, and a lot of Republicans in November said, you know what? This is our opportunity to say, we don't want that. Gloria Robert, I wonder what you think about that. And let me serve it up in terms of a name that's come up here a couple times, but might have been more prominent. That is Donald Trump. So, you know, midweek, Trump weighs in and says, we're looking at a huge embarrassment for Republicans. Get it together. Get behind McCarthy. And it's basically ignored. Now, the reports are that McCarthy's progress of late has something to do with Trump's efforts. But what Mm -hmm. does the whole episode say about the continuing sway of Trump over the party and the nation? Well, look, I mean, we learned that in the midterms, that the sway of Donald Trump has been severely reduced, and we see that in the House. And he may have sway over the people that that he's calling now, which could be a new member or, yeah. you know, someone in a red state, blah, blah. But this is kind of the evolution of Donald Trump, who, by the way, announced his candidacy for the presidency. 
and who is still a very popular within the Republican Party. But I would argue that the party and, you know, going back to the Tea Party, the conservative movement was there before Donald Trump. And Donald Trump became the vessel for the conservatives, not only ideology, because Trump never had a real ideology of his own until he adopted one for grievances, for their grievances about not being represented well, not being taken seriously by members of Congress, et cetera, et cetera. And that Trump picked that up and ran with it. So he doesn't have ownership of the conservative movement. And people really know that because they know his history. And now that there are other alternatives on the horizon, Voters are clearly saying, oh, you know, look at Ron DeSantis. So now that there are other people on the horizon, voters can say, look, you know, I like Trump in this time, but enough already. I can move on to someone else. And I think what's different this time, as you watch what goes on in the House, is people are not afraid of him anymore Mm -hmm. in the way they used to be afraid of him. I mean, people were fearful of crossing him. And I think that there are still some who are, but just look at Lauren Boebert and, and, you know, Matt Gates, for heaven's sakes, who worshiped at his feet, right? So the fear factor is not there. And that is a huge difference. And the reason it's not there is that he wanted to be the kingmaker in the midterm elections and he was not. Okay. Close out question here. Forget the whole scrum aspect, the drama aspect, just from the standpoint of good government, not any particular party, dysfunctional, healthy, effective government. What should we want to see happen here? Any thoughts about just what a salutary result just for governance of the country? (laughs) what a thought what a thought good government how about a speaker of the house right a speaker of the house a speaker of the house would be a good thing that would be a good start Uh yeah i've been watching nancy pelosi here on the floor and it's so what a contrast uh, right right? she had the same narrow margin and did so much right and the democrats being completely united for hakeem jeffries and look i think people want to see government work And government can't work if it can't run, if it can't operate. Look, people have reasons for disliking Kevin McCarthy on both sides of the aisle. Let me let me say that. But if this was the person that got 200 votes and or whatever and couldn't become speaker and was held up by a a bunch of nihilists, you know, maybe the outcome is that the caucus prevails. That would be interesting. The Freedom Caucus, yeah. No, no, no. I don't mean the Freedom Caucus. I mean the the majority of the Republican Caucus. Oh, yeah. okay. But of course, we're now in the in the uh, longest battle since the Civil War. In past battles, yeah. there's right. been you know a responsible group of governors. We don't have that here. So whoever wins, everything you mentioned about the threats to full faith and credit and the kind of nihilist strain, I think, is still going to prevail, including because they have exacted such concessions. Robert or Jonathan, any thoughts about just what is the good government result here? I mean, maybe it's to actually have the Republicans go down in flames and a new responsible party emerge from the ashes. As a reporter, I don't have an expectation of good governance in the traditional 
historic sense of this is going to be bipartisan grand bargains, some kind of coalition on certain key issues. We've seen that in the past. You can think about Reagan and Tip O'Neill, Clinton and Newt Gingrich. They, those examples sound almost cliche, and they are politically, but they really had value in that the sense that they were divided government examples of people working together on the big issues. Functioning now, based on my reporting, is going to be the key. Forget any kind of big deal. Kevin McCarthy will be a speaker who's very much constrained by his base to not go too far in negotiations. That limits the scope of governance. It means functioning itself will be a challenge because already the Freedom Caucus is telling McCarthy, and I just asked McCarthy about this a few minutes ago on Friday afternoon. I said, are you talking about the debt limit as part of this deal? Because I keep hearing that from different deal makers. And he didn't swat away the question at all. He didn't get into details. Then I asked Chip Roy, the congressman from Texas, who's a key negotiator for the conservative side here. And he said, look, we want to have spending cuts as a mandated part of any debt limit discussion. And so that means when the debt limit comes up in 2023, you have a Freedom Caucus that's working with the Speaker of the House, likely Kevin McCarthy, who is going to demand of the Biden White House and Senate Democrats pretty big cuts. Now, the Democrats feel like they have no reason to give any cuts because they just won the Senate and they kept the White House, of course. So why would they somehow cave to the House Freedom Caucus and Kevin McCarthy? But that's going to lead to a complicated political and fiscal moment, to say the least. I think, Harry, that electing a speaker is, you know, the first step. But I think the scary part or scary parts then start happening. This is all fun and interesting and in some cases kind of hilarious in a schadenfreude kind of way, depending on your perspective. But once Kevin McCarthy gets the gavel, assuming he gets the gavel, then the hard part of governing starts. And, you know, the longer he is in the role, the more I think people are going to understand just how hard Nancy Pelosi's job as speaker was. She made it look easy. And it's not easy. And Kevin McCarthy in this speaker fight is seeing how hard it is. And then it's going to become exponentially more difficult once he is speaker. And I don't know what the good governance thing is here. I can't find that pony. (laughs) I just can't. Not right now. I think at some point, will this House Republican majority do something, bollock something up so royally that it forces either the party to change or it makes the American people in the next election really turn away from them and send them into the wilderness for an amount of time where they will do yet another autopsy, because you do autopsies on dead things, but understand and really take the lessons from the losses to heart and then change. But I think we're about to go through a period of pain that we can't possibly imagine because to imagine it is really quite frightening. But if I've learned anything through the Trump years, it was have an open imagination because if you can imagine it, it can possibly happen. No, it's such a great point. And again, go into what one might want here. It does feel to me as if 
until the Republican Party makes some basic transformation or really comes to grips with the nihilist position they've taken, our troubles as a country just don't go away. It's time now for our sidebar feature, in which we ask a prominent person from another field to explain an important legal concept in the news. The concept today is two different pleas that a mentally disturbed criminal defendant might offer. One, that he is incompetent to stand trial. The other, that he is not guilty of the crime for reason of insanity. What is the difference between the two? To explain it to us, we are really pleased to welcome Jeremy Sisto. Jeremy is a television, film, and stage actor best known for his roles as Billy Chenoweth in HBO's Six Feet Under, Detective Cyrus Lupo in NBC's Law & Order, Elton Tisha in Clueless, and Earl Hunterson in Waitress, as well as many other comedy roles. He also starred in the play Festin on Broadway and co-wrote the screenplay for the comedy Breakpoint, in which he also starred. He was nominated for a Critics' Choice TV Award for Best Actor in a Comedy Series for his role as George Altman in the ABC sitcom Suburgatory. I give you Jeremy Sisto on Insanity versus Incompetency. Mental Illness in the Criminal Law Many people who commit crimes have some sort of mental illness. It's not unusual for accused criminal defendants to claim that their mental illness bears on their culpability or even their ability to stand trial. These legal claims come in different forms and, if successful, lead to different outcomes. The most important categories of mental status claims are insanity, diminished capacity, and mental competency. So what are the differences among these three concepts? Well, a defendant presents an insanity defense as a legal excuse to criminal culpability. Because they permit acquittal of a defendant who admits having committed the criminal conduct, insanity defenses and the elements of them are often controversial. Some focus on whether the defendant's illness caused him not to appreciate that his conduct was wrong or criminal, and others focus on whether the illness so affected the defendant's self-control that the conduct was essentially involuntary. Diminished capacity refers to a claim that as a result of mental illness, the defendant lacked the specific mental state prescribed for the charged crime, though he can still be guilty of a crime with a lesser intent. For example, a murder defendant might argue that because of his mental illness at the time of the offense, he should be convicted of the lesser charge of manslaughter because he didn't intend to cause death. Finally, competency is a completely different idea that applies to the issue of whether the defendant can stand trial at all. It is a constitutional concept under the Due Process Clause. Due process requires that a defendant be at least mentally competent to understand the nature and purpose of the legal proceedings against him. If the defendant is determined to be legally incompetent, then typically the judge temporarily suspends the trial with a finding of incompetency, and the defendant is committed civilly and treated until he becomes competent to stand trial. For Talking Feds, I'm Jeremy Sisto. Thank you, Jeremy Sisto, for explaining that distinction between incompetency and insanity. You can see Jeremy now as the assistant special agent in charge, Jubal Valentine, in FBI on CBS.
All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we whip through the whiskeys to find out the difference between the three main types, scotch, bourbon, and rye. Whiskey, spelled without an E, is produced in Scotland and Canada, whereas whiskey, spelled with an E, means it's produced in the U.S. and Ireland and includes scotch, bourbon, and rye. It's these grains that help define which type of whiskey it will become before it eventually lands among the thousands of bottles on the shelves at your local Total Wine & More. Now, let's talk about scotch. Scotch is typically made from malted barley, blended with other grains, and that helps give it a little bit of a bite, making it more in an acquired taste. Bourbon must be made from at least 51% corn, produced in the U.S. and aged in new charred oak barrels. The oak gives this brown liquid its signature sweet flavor. And then there's rye, which must be made from at least, yep, you guessed it, 51% rye. Rye is a type of grass in the wheat family that has a spicy, edgier flavor, adding a little extra kick you may not find in a bourbon. For a true test of bourbon versus rye, we recommend you pop into Total Wine, maybe grab a bottle of scotch while you're here. But to really get to know the differences in scotch, bourbon, and rye, start by talking to the guides at Total Wine and More, who are more than happy to talk day or night about whiskey, with or without an E. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. So it's all very related, but I would like to talk about the January 6th committee report because the through line we were discussing before, do we see this as the culmination of 1980, 1992, 2008? But in any event, there's sure a direct through line to January 6, 2021, and even in the McCarthy supposed establishment core, you know, uh, some 139 Republicans who embraced the big lie. So any thoughts about what this whole brouhaha in the House this week says about the continued potency of the social and political forces that gave rise to the insurrection? Does it show that this sort of cancer is still with us in undiminished strength? I mean, yes. This goes back to an answer I gave earlier, that what we're seeing on the House floor today is a continuation in another form of the insurrection. You got a lot of people there who bought into the big lie, who voted not to certify the 2020 election. A lot of people who ran on that, who are now sitting in Congress, given the responsibility by their constituents to quote unquote, govern on their behalf. But these are folks who aren't interested in governing. They're interested in getting their way, however they define it. And as we know, their way is not a way that a majority of the American people view things in the country. We don't agree on everything, but I think in the last election, the American people made it clear what y'all did in 2021 and the way you talked about things is not where we want to go. And so until we can have a reckoning on January 6th and move on beyond that, I don't think we get 
to a place where the tempests that have been unleashed are corralled or whatever the right word is? Well, the question is, what is that reckoning? Some of the people here, you know, Jim Jordan was nominated to be Speaker of the House and didn't comply with the subpoena, right? right? right. From the January 6th committee. I mean, the people in this rump group, I mean, Jordan was not one of them, were also people, as we pointed out earlier, who were election deniers. And they will potentially have more of a voice as a result of this in the next Congress. But what is the reckoning? Is the reckoning for Donald Trump? Is the reckoning in the special counsel? Is the reckoning in Georgia? Is the reckoning in the courts? This string has to play out a little bit more, I think. And the political reckoning may be that this is the moment for these people to prove that they can govern better than the Democrats did. And if they resort to, you know, constant Hunter Biden investigations, et cetera, et cetera, the public may say, you know, that's not what we actually voted for. And so will that be a reckoning? So it kind of depends on how you define all of this. The fake electors, what will happen to them? Will they be prosecuted? So, I mean, as you know, Harry, better than any of us, this is a huge bag. And what will satisfy the electorate to believe that democracy is back on track and that you can have faith in your elections? And Democrats generally have faith in their elections. Republicans don't. What will convince the people on the Republican side that, yes, the government is working again? And that's that's hard to answer. <laughs> and it's the question of the era. Let me ask, because Gloria's response gives rise to the suggestion that absent some serious prosecutions from the DOJ, and probably not just of Trump, is the record left that there's no accountability? In other words, how much depends now on the department's bringing charges and securing convictions? If that doesn't happen and zeroing in on the committee's work, is everything that's happened to sort of ferret out the big lie, et cetera, for naught? Or are we still a few giant steps toward the light, whether or not DOJ is able to bring these prosecutions? I think it's the latter. The January 6th committee their bar, Harry, as you well know, in terms of the evidence and everything, is much lower than that of DOJ's. Right. And if DOJ comes back with the legal bars that they have to meet in terms of evidence, the political considerations in terms of what does this mean if we go after a former sitting president, blah, blah, blah. If they come back and say, you know what, we just can't prosecute then that's a reckoning that the country is going to have to deal with. But the one thing that I think has been incredibly beneficial is the fact that the January 6th committee did the hearings that they did, that they handed over all of the transcripts and everything that they had to DOJ, that those papers, by and large, well, certainly the January 6th committee's report is public, their appendices are public, their you know backup data is public. And in the end, while we might not have accountability in our time, in our day and age, I am confident that history will judge this moment and judge those people harshly, appropriately harshly. 
for what they did to this country, to our ideals, to our founding principles, and hold them accountable for pushing us to a brink. And I hope when history does make that judgment, that there is still an America that people can look back and say, whoo, we really dodged a bullet then. We're not quite there yet. When they had a January 6th commemoration outside the House of Representatives on Friday, January 6th, 2023, few, if any, Republicans attended this Democratic-led event. Brian Fitzpatrick, the centrist moderate Republican from Pennsylvania, attended, but I didn't see any other Republicans there. And there's a real divide. It's unfortunate it's so partisan because this is an issue of democracy. The U.S. Capitol was attacked. It's an irrefutable fact. It's not a partisan statement. The process of certifying a presidential election was disrupted by violent extremists. This is something the world saw, the world was on edge about. Yet the committee, because of how it was formed, and McCarthy felt like his own picks weren't allowed to be on the committee, and they decided not to be on. Speaker Pelosi didn't like it. It led to this committee from the beginning getting a partisan, broad brush paint job from many Republican critics. But I believe the committee, in a historic way, has left behind a lot of evidence. And what's important is that the American people, and I mean this as a journalist, have as much access to information about what is happening in American democracy. And the challenge of the January 6th story is that if the committee didn't exist, if it didn't do its work, then the January 6th story would pretty much be, as you know, Harry, it would be a Justice Department story. It'd be about grand juries investigating, pulling in witnesses. And we have such little visibility into any grand jury as reporters or as citizens. And so for the January 6th committee to bring out some of this evidence, play it as video before millions of people, whether it settles in now or in three years or five years, people have access to the information. You can never force people to take a side. You can never force people to be convinced of anything. But you can, whether it's a congressional committee or a news organization, bring issues to light of public importance in a nonpartisan way. And the committee showed that Donald Trump, the president of the United States, had a coordinated effort to pressure the vice president to overturn the election in some convoluted way. And it was certainly done with intent. And my book I wrote with Bob Woodward, Peril, the John Eastman memo featured in the committee's work. You saw all these different documents and testimony was so important that showed that Trump wanted to overturn the election, an election he said to some of his allies privately in November and December 2020. He kind of knew he had lost. He couldn't believe it. And he ultimately pushed lies. And now he's running for president again. And what's interesting is that the committee closes as Trump's campaign for 2024 continues, but Trump's campaign doesn't have a lot of momentum speed at this moment. We'll see if that's in part because of what's been baked in with the committee and people having reservations on both sides, but even with the Republican Party about Trump, or if maybe he still comes back. It's hard to predict. I think, first of all, the January 6th committee conducted itself in a way that was geared towards history yeah, and making a historical record for the country that no one could challenge. That's why they printed it out right away. They got it out there through the general printing office. Nobody could say that these transcripts were doctored. 
this was a moment when Congress actually, and this committee actually decided that for the good of the country, they needed to reveal what they could, given their limitations and the limits of people who were pleading the fifth and people who wouldn't comply with subpoenas, which as you know better than anyone, the Justice Department does not have those limits. But they did something for the country that I think historians in the future will be thankful for. And I think the public will be thankful for it, no matter how much Republicans say, you know, it was dominated by Democrats and, you know, rhinos and all the rest of it. The record is there for people to read. We did not hear from the former president. We did not hear from the former chief of staff. But they managed through phone records and through talking to people who were not in the center of things, but standing around the wall of the Oval Office, who were witnesses to history. And I think that they will be remembered for the way they conducted themselves and the way they told this story to the American public. And I know that a lot of people said, oh, I didn't watch, I didn't pay attention to it. When you look back on it, you will see that that is the moment that Donald Trump's numbers started to slide a bit. And when the public was asked whether the president probably did something wrong or illegal, a majority of the American public actually said yes. And so no matter what happens in the courts, and I think that's so important because that's the end of the story. They were the beginning of the telling of the story. The DOJ will be the end of the story, but they started it. They started it. They took it seriously. And I think they presented the case to the American people in a way that has never been done before. Here, here. And let me just say, you know, it's only been a few weeks, but it does feel to me as if the debate has been altered and the facts now stand as established in a way they didn't before. And that's how it will sort of fold in both to our politics and to history. We are out of time. Thank you so much to Jonathan, Robert, and Gloria. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for our supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with tax expert Steve Rosenthal about Trump's taxes. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. 
Rosie Dawn Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner, David Littman, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Thanks very much to Jeremy Sisto for explaining the difference between insanity and incompetency in the criminal justice system. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. <laughs>